Wadamuli. I'm Kerry Lee Harding and welcome back to another episode of Take It Black. Yama, I'm Kira Jenkins and you're probably thinking these aren't the usual voices that host Take It Black, but we've taken over for this special International Women's Day episode of Take It Black. And thanks to everyone who has subscribed, shared and reviewed the show. We're going to have a deadly show ahead, Kira. We're going to take a look behind the story of uh, Natalie Armat, uh, NITV newsreader. We're going to take a look at an interview she has done with uh, a woman by the name of Jodie. We're also going to chat about this year's International Women's Day theme, which is Each for Equal, and shine a spotlight on some trailblazing women. Of course, there's so many in our communities, our families and our lives. Yes, our first guest for this episode is NITV's own Natalie Armat, who is a real trailblazer herself. She's someone that I've watched for the past few years reading the news on NITV and is quite an, an inspiration for me. Me too, sis. How lucky are we to have Natalie Armat in the studio? Welcome to I Take don't know It Black. What to say. <laughs> Sitting here blushing. I don't know what to say. Thank you guys for having me. A lot of girls, I should probably say, for <laughs> International Women's Day for, for having me in today. A long time listener and first time caller, as they say. But no, I've been really enjoying the podcasts and great to be here um, with you to, uh, yeah, have a bit of a yarn about some of the issues facing facing our women this International Women's Day. So many issues, of course, as we know, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women face. I want to have a yarn with you, Natalie and Kira, about the role of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander in the media across the Australian landscape mm. uh, that is um, full of multi-platform media. How do we think things are going for women, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in the media? Uh, Natalie? Well, look, I think for me, certainly I can say without a doubt that it has changed since I first started uh, in the media, which is uh, without giving too much away, going back about 20 years ago uh, now when I started. But still, it's been a pretty slow glacial pace, hasn't it? You know, it is great. We are starting to see more Indigenous people and women in particular um, on our television screens and on radio. But um, yeah, it's. uh, I think we should still have a lot more than we do. But certainly I remember when I first started out, there were very, very few women to look up to. I was lucky enough to start at ABC in Darwin, which was one of the few places that did have a female Aboriginal newsreader, a lady who back then was known as Barbara McCarthy. Nowadays, of course, she's uh, Senator Malandiri McCarthy, Senator for the Northern Territory. So I was very lucky to to come into a place. And uh, also my immediate boss was Charlie King, who's an ABC sports broadcasting legend in the Northern Territory. So I was very lucky to come into a team based in the Northern Territory that did have a few Indigenous uh, presenters and broadcasters, but I reckon that would have been the exception for the rule back then and probably still today. I think you were very lucky indeed to have that support around you with other black fellas working in the ABC up in Darwin. Um, I too have been in the industry for about 20 years. The millennials call me a veteran broadcaster. <laughs> me too. Bless them. <laughs> And I started off at, uh, it was called 3LO back in the day. It's now known as ABC Melbourne. And um, I was the only Aboriginal producer um, at ABC South Bank for many years. And there wasn't a lot of 
women to look up to in broadcasting back in the day, but now we, we do have so many more women who are taking the lead in media and we're lucky to have NITV, of course, which opens up many doors for Indigenous women to come through. Well, yeah. we've certainly seen, you know, we like to claim her. Brooke Boney, of course, started on the Today Show and isn't it great after, you know, seeing, uh, you know, so many uh white panels in particular talking about Indigenous uh, issues on those breakfast programs that we do have Brooke Boney here. Well, she started here in the NITV newsroom. Uh, you know, she'd worked on Koori uh, Radio uh, previously while she was uh, at, at uni and then we snapped her up and, you know, she started here. Look at her now. So that's, you know, she's sort of the face of change that we're seeing in terms of more Indigenous women on on television. But as I said, it took me 20 years till we start to see that. And I just want to take you back a few years, around about back to 2010, I was working at Corey Radio in Sydney and I got a phone call from a young Brooke Boney. Oh, there you go. In university wanting to come and volunteer and um, Brooke did come and volunteer on the Black Chat radio show. So um, wonderful memories there and so lovely to see her progress and to grow into the role in which she's doing now in mainstream media. We just need so much more of that though, don't we, Kira? Absolutely. And like I I mean, as the the millennial in the room, uh, I, I was very, <laughs> very lucky because I grew up watching black women in media and I started I started my journalism career at the Curry Mail. So, you know, I've always worked in black media. You know, I'm always surrounded by deadly Aboriginal journalists. Um and I, I think that it's made me a like a better journalist and and uh, proud uh, proud of who I am and proud of, you know, the work that we all do because it is so important. Um and I hope that you know the next generation after after me after after that even can look up and see tons of black women on their television and hear us on the radio and you know read about us in the newspapers because that's what it should be like i think that's you know without blowing our own horn too much i think that's been the the difference has been that we do have a platform like NITV uh, now that is now, you know, free to air in all Australian television. But I know, and probably the same for you, Kerry, when we started, you know, you either started in community radio or you had to try and crack a cadetship. Yeah, cadetship at at one of the mainstream media outlets. So it's amazing now that within SBS we have NITV and we're able to, you know, um, train up a whole new generation of Aboriginal journalists, whereas before we might have lost them because we know, and just generally, there are so many graduates, even when I graduated, again, going back two decades ago, there are more journalism graduates than there are jobs generally. And then it's really hard if you, you know, come from a remote community, you don't look like other people on the television to get those few jobs that exist. So I think that's been a real game changer and, uh, you know, it's really opened the the door for some really incredible young journalists like Cura to, to walk through and there are opportunities and there we're seeing them take those opportunities and absolutely run with them. So I think that's sort of, you know, been a, a real game changer to have a place like NITV that's got a national platform and 
obviously doing the very important job of, of sharing our stories and giving our people a voice as well. But we've got somewhere a really good solid training ground to bring people through the door and then send them off into the world if that's what they want to do, if you want to move into commercial television, uh, as we've seen with, with, with Brooke. Um, you know, you're able to able to do that. So, yeah, as I said, don't want to make this too much about us, but I think that yeah. has really made a difference in the last decade or so. I think really important just what you said there. I know when I was working back at ABC Melbourne back in the day, started back in 1998 as a cadet, and I was working on mainstream radio programs because there the other there was one Aboriginal program on local radio speaking out. Then there's the way on Radio National. So there's basically only a couple of jobs in the ABC for blackfellas. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were deadly people who were doing those roles at the time, Rihanna Patrick and Daniel Browning, of course, who's still presenting away. And uh, I found myself working on mainstream programs, which I loved because I gained so much experience, but I was just craving and wanting so much to share my people's stories, especially those stories coming mm. out of Victoria. So what I would end up doing was reporting on arts and creative stories on my own time. Yeah, and, and filing them that way because there was nobody else doing it at that time out of Victoria. So we have come a long way in that. Absolutely. And <laughs> yeah. as I said, it's, you know, it's really exciting. I've got a couple of young nieces and I love that, you know, there's going to be those opportunities, you know, whether it's in media or, you know, right across the spectrum. I think, you know, there, there are opportunities, um, you know, more than, than there's ever been before. And that is due to, yeah, some of the, the trailblazers that we've had and that we're going to talk about um, through through this program. And as I said, it's like I'm just so impressed at the young generation that are coming through and, and taking those opportunities and, and building, um, you know, on, on those uh, those things that our, our trailblazers have uh, laid down for us. Absolutely. So for this International Women's Day special, Natalie, you're here also to talk with us about Jodie's story. Yeah, that's right. This is a, an interview that um, I got a chance to do recently. I was I was very lucky. Often, um, you know, you can spend quite a amount of time trying to, to chase up people to interview. This one just happened to fall into my lap. Um, Firstly, to tell you who Jodie is, uh, some people, especially those that, that follow NITV News, might recall late last year a woman, a West Australian woman by the name of Jodie Gore, um, actually was, was given early release um, from prison um, on compassionate grounds by the West Australian government. Jodie had actually murdered her partner, um, but Jodie wasn't, it was a victim of um, terrible abuse that she'd endured for sort of 14, 15 years at, at the hands of, of her former um, partner. And so she had um, stabbed him at a, at a party um, one night and had been uh, convicted and, uh, and sent to prison. Uh, she was um, sentenced to life uh, with a minimum of 12 years. It's sort of one of those cases that we never really would have heard about, I expect, otherwise. But uh, the West Australian newspaper started uh, doing some digging into Jodie's case and uh, more generally looking at uh, women who murder their partners 
in self-defence when they've been a victim of, of domestic violence. And uh, they discovered her case and really sort of took up the, the, the challenge and um, started writing and asking questions. And it managed to, to bring it to the attention of the West Australian government and the, the Attorney General, John Quigley, who uh, made a rather unprecedented ruling that um, he was going to uh, grant Jodie early release um, on these compassionate grounds because when they looked into her case, they found that um, they had not, for, for whatever reason, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't understand the, you know, the, the legal system under which they work in Western Australia, but there had been no one at the trial that had been allowed to sort of testify um, as to the abuse that Jodie had suffered, you know, even though there were sort of records from women's shelters and experts who could uh, speak to the psychological damage of uh, and, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress, they weren't allowed to testify for Jodie. So she was convicted purely on the night at the party and what happened there there was no consideration for these extenuating circumstances. So quite an incredible um, story. And the reason it sort of came to us is Jodie was actually invited to be a panellist on the Insight program that here at SBS, um, who are, you know, an upcoming episode that they're doing. Um, and she was sort of on the panel and we found out that she was coming. And of course, it's amazing that her story is going to be shared on Insight, but we were also aware that she was one of a number of women that are being featured on that show. So we were really keen to, to get a one-on-one -on -one and sit down with her and talk about her particular case and her, you know, particular story as a woman who comes from a pretty, you know, remote part of the world. She's uh, from Wyndham in the Western Australian uh, Kimberley originally, but uh, this all unfolded in Kununurra. So we reached out through our friends at Insight and she agreed to sit down with me um, to sort of talk about her incredible story and particularly her journey since her release in October last year. Now, Jodie, I imagine that the last five months for you since you were released from prison has been a real emotional roller coaster. Tell us, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing good because, you know, Blackwell is saying that when you I'm from the Kimberley, so I've been down in Perth for that four years, been away from home. So, like, um, healing take place, so my blood pressure is good, and I've controlled, so I'm a renal patient, so I control my fluids, so that's good, so they're getting me ready for a kidney transplant. Yeah, and it's good to be back home with my grandchildren, my family, and friends, yeah. And it feels good to be back in country, you know. Now, for those who don't know your story, you served four years in, in prison. And four months. Four years and four months in prison. You were expecting to serve at least 12 years, weren't you? Yeah. Tell us about that day last October when you found out that, that you were going to be released early. Firstly, maybe how you, you heard the news. Um, my lawyer rang me up. Well, when I came from dialysis, um, the officer said, I don't you to ring your uh, lawyer up, George. So I rang him up and he said, Joey, did you hear the good news? And I said, no. And I said, oh, you're going to get released today or tomorrow. I said, well, but he said to keep it quiet till they announce it. Yeah. And so, well, and I was so happy, couldn't wait and excited. Yeah. And I thank, I finally said, oh, well, thank God, praise the Lord for answering my prayers, you know. So while you're out now, as you said, you, you served four years and, and four months in prison before you were granted that early release. 
do you feel like the, the justice system and the courts let you down when they didn't take into account the, the many years, the 14 years I think it was, of abuse that, they, that you suffered? Yeah, um, like I said, for me, when I heard my, um, what I got, the 12 years, I said, that's gotta be unbelievable, you know? Where's the justice for me, you know? Violence against women is a crime. He still had no right laying a hands on me, you know? I was bashed, beat me, you know, black and blue, yeah. Now, the West Australian government has, has promised to, to make changes for, to make it easier for, for the courts to hear um, the stories of women like yourself who have you know, been subjected to, to years and years um, of, of abuse and also to hear you know, expert evidence in, in the court cases about the impacts of, of domestic violence. How do you feel about that, knowing that, that your case has, has prompted this, this change in, in Western Australia? I feel it's good, great, because you know how growing up when we hear stories for Aboriginal people, you know, like we hear both sides of stories? Well, in the courts, they should hear both sides of the stories, you know? And like, they didn't hear my side of the stories, you know? They think I lived a fairy tale, but I didn't, you know? They've all these things, yeah, abuse. People abuse, threatened things, they threatened me too, even though I was, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, so it was good that they have justice done, you know? Always you're listening to the Take It Black podcast and we're here talking about International Women's Day. So we'll start with a bit of history on that. The first International Women's Day was marked in 1911. Um, it, was first, it was first started in Austria, Germany, Denmark and Switzerland and the idea was actually tabled by a German woman uh, at an international conference of working women the year beforehand. Um, more than a million people turned up to those rallies across those countries, but it wasn't until 1928 that the first International Women's Day was held in Australia. Uh, women rallied in Sydney and they were calling for equal pay, an eight-hour working day for what they called shop girls and, and for paid leave as well for, for, these, for these workers. Um, the following year, with the, f the first rally was held in Brisbane and the first March was held in Melbourne in 1931. The demands, though, and the roots of International Women's Day um, itself were actually started and spearheaded by white women. Many First Nations women and women of colour have felt the feminist movement has forgotten them. So where do we, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, fit in? As Indigenous women, the discrimination that we can face is not just based on gender, it's it's based on race as well. And some of us face it on the on the basis of disability, of class, of sexuality as well. Um, but our women are strong. We've been making our voices heard and amplifying them, um, talking about the issues that are important to us. And, and you can see that being amplified more and more um, as time goes on and, and in recent years, we're making sure that our voices are being heard. We're starting to take up more space in the feminist movement as we should. And events around the country this year, I've noticed a lot more Indigenous women on, on panels and um, at the forefront of events. Um, the other thing we should mention is that since 1996, the UN has given a theme. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> since 1996, 
the UN has given a theme to International Women's Day each year. And this year's theme is generation equality. It's a call to action across generations. And in true 2020 style, there's also a hashtag, which is hashtag each for equal. So for me, that that means, you know, we should all be coming together to fight for equality no matter, you know, on on those things that I mentioned before, disability, race, age, um, and sexuality, class, um, those are the things that we should be thinking about, not just gender. Um, what about you, Nat? What what do you see as the kind of meaning of, of this, this International Women's Day theme? I think it's also for me about equal access, um, especially for our women to things like employment, to education. You know, we we we, we all know about the the closing the gap and the, the gaps that, that currently exist. And I was actually lucky enough, um, the UN Women Australia actually run a series of International Women's Day breakfasts around the country and SBS is, is a partner in supporting them to put on those events. So I was actually invited to go and MC the International Women's Day breakfast over in Perth. So we really, um, you know, explored this theme of, of generation equality and, and the work that UN Women are trying to do. And that's sort of the area is that they're really um, focusing on. They've got a, a new program um, that uh, we, we all learnt about at this and it's an incredible uh, morning, some really inspiring people in the room and it's, it's, it's called a Second Chance Education um, Program because we know that so many um, women in general but particularly here in Australia from either Indigenous and some of our migrant backgrounds didn't get the chance for whatever reason to, to go to school or get an education or they were forced to leave early. Uh, so this is a program they're running called Second Chance Education, working with uh, an incredible uh, um, organisation um, in, in Western Australia um, as part of this pilot program, which is all about um, getting meaningful education for Indigenous women, because we hear, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's fa- founder, um, Wendy Yarnold, was saying, you know, you talk to Indigenous women and they've got incredible CVs because they've done all of these courses, but none of these courses and training are actually leading to real jobs. And that's something I know we hear all the time as Indigenous journalists. It's a it's a common uh, problem. So this is about trying to help women who perhaps have already raised their families for whatever reason they didn't get, um, you know, an education when they were, you know, at, at the school age. So giving them training and finding meaningful work for them to to go into. So I think that's sort of something that's, and that's a change that we can all help to contribute to. You know, we sort of talk sometimes about, you know, pay parity and things like that, but, you know, that can be hard for the average person to to influence change. But just sharing skills, you know, um, for companies to say, we've got some job vacancies and we would like you to help us fill them with a with, and give a woman a second chance at, at finding employment. So I think, you know, for me, uh, when we think about Indi- um, International Women's Day and in terms of our um, Indigenous women, it's nice to consider ways that we can all perhaps help uh, to, to, to close that and it's not just, you know, an issue that we're still going to be talking about in two decades' time. So, and, yeah, the role we all have to play, men and women, together just to um to yeah help achieve that uh that equality um hopefully in one generation not generations equality hopefully yeah within uh, one generation if not sooner 
And talking about education there, we know that um, our parents, for example, lived um, on reserves and missions. So, you know, my mother wasn't uh, educated, you know, at um, a high school level. She left school pretty early and um, well, actually ran away from the mission and hid with her sister in, um, in a cupboard in Brisbane because she was afraid the authorities were going to come mm. and get her. But you know what? No one ever came. Yeah. So that's quite bizarre. Yeah. Hey, Mum went on to then study at university at ANU, age 40. Amazing. Went on like... to be one of the first lot of um, Aboriginal archaeology students to go through in back in the 90s. So quite inspiring that we do have our aunties, mothers to look up to um, with education and the inspiring things that they've done. And Kira, just going back to what you were talking about there, how the history took place of International Women's Day. You mentioned there was rallies in Brisbane and um, the first march held in Melbourne, but the rally in Brisbane back in 1931, well, my mob from Sherberg, they wouldn't have been there. They weren't allowed to leave the mission back in those days. So it's interesting just to reflect back and and um, on the history of that as well, I think, on this International Women's Day. Remember the women who have gone before us, which we'll be speaking about some of them, coming up in this podcast for Take It Black. So now we've we've got some um, nominations for the unsung heroes of our community, the Spotlight on Women. And nominations have flown in from our listeners. How good is that? Amazing, right? Uh-huh. And so I've got a list of fabulous women in front of me. Um and I'll 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 let you know who they are. So Tracy Westerman, Bronwyn Penrith, Fifi Harris Leonora, Shailen Isaac, Ricky Bruce, Fallon Gregory, Joella Walker. Sorry, Joella Warkill, Tanya Hosh, and Melissa Lukashenko. They're all our nominations um, for our for our spotlight on women. And they've come from our Take It Black listeners. Yeah, they have. That's just too deadly indeed. I wanted to talk about some of the amazing women in my life that are my heroes. And uh, some of them are local women from the Melbourne and Victorian community in which this Murray woman is now a part of. And I'm very grateful for that, that I'm working down on Coolan country. But I'd just like to take this moment to mention my mother, who I just spoke about a little bit earlier. Mum started uh, at university, age 40. And I remember being in year 12 and seeing mum study at ANU at that time and just being in awe of her and being so inspired that at aged 40, after already raising six children, yeah, has then gone on to study an archaeology degree. Uh, Mum then moved back up home to country on Queensland and worked on several cultural heritage programs and works with mob all over the state. Um, more recently, Mum's been... Actually, just edit that out. Thank you very much. Can you just edit that, please, Mick? Thank you. My mum also went on to look after and care for my sister's children. My sister passed away um, suddenly, age 26. So after mum had raised her first six children, went on to do the archaeology degree and then raised her three grannies as well, which a lot of women 
uh, Aboriginal women do find themselves in this situation, don't they, Natalie? We have the Grandmothers Against Removals yeah. uh, organisation, for example. Absolutely. Mm. And, uh, you know, each year they seem to get more and more prolific in the amount of work that they do. They're obviously very active here, you know, in, in New South Wales. I know you did a story not so long ago. Yes, I did. Kira, as well, where we know, you know, and it is an experience that's echoed right across the country, but we know there are so many Aboriginal kids, you know, in out-of-home care uh, and in the foster system here in New South Wales and... Um, I'm probably more familiar with those figures, but I know, you know, it, it is right across the country as well. And, um, yeah, GMARS, as we as we call them. GMARS, of course. <laughs> yeah. Grandmothers Against Removal. But, yeah, GMARS is, is their acronym. Um, yeah, have been, you know, really uh, lobbying for years um, to, to try and, and um, you know, firstly, you know, address the number of our kids, you know, stop them going into care in the first place and then those that are in the system making sure that they've got, you know, kinship carers or that they're, you know, um, Aboriginal families um, so they can remain connected to to culture and um, in, in the time that they are in the system. And, you know, that's it's all unpaid grassroots work that they do. It's just their, their blood, sweat and tears and their time. And, yeah, I think that, you know, they really are starting to, to make an impact and get their voices heard, which is is wonderful. And hopefully that can yeah, lead, lead to some changes within the system. Of course. A big shout out to all the grandmothers out there who are looking after their beautiful grannies. Indeed, so many of them. I also today wanted to pay tribute to one of my nanas, who's uh, Nana Ruth Hegarty. And my nana wrote uh, an award-winning book, Is That You, Ruthie? And, um, of course, we come from Sherberg community, so that the book was speaking of her personal experience growing up on the mission back in the day. I also have an auntie who is really my inspiration in life as well, my auntie Jackie Huggins AM, who is from central Queensland and uh, Biri Gubba and Juru woman as well formerly the co-chair of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, Reconciliation Australia, and currently is a co-chair of the Eminent Persons Panel of the Path to Treaty up in Queensland. So ever so proud of uh, Arnie Jackie. Absolutely. Yeah, groundbreaking work too. Absolutely. There, you know, hopefully that's uh, going to set uh, Queensland on the track towards a, towards a treaty and sort of follow in Victoria's footsteps. Yeah, so I've got aunties working at that level and I've got aunties who work in the grassroots level as well as we all do in our communities back home. And I wanted to pay respect to uh, Auntie Ada Simpson who has set up on Sherberg, a museum for us mob, the Ration Shed Museum, which you may have heard of, eh? I actually did a story not so long ago oh, when so I was last there. It was, yeah, <laughs> it was really amazing. Like I, you know, don't have any real strong connections to my well, my connections are more the Torres Strait, so the very top end of, of Queensland. So it was my first time in Sherberg, but I learnt so much from, you know, just taken on a little tour of that uh, of that museum and uh, it was sort of one of those things I was there for another story and we just shot this because we were there and and because we could but um, it's one of the stories I've actually got the most reaction to it was fairly widely shared on social media so which tells me people love hearing those stories of our, our community too and so many people um, said that they saw it and telling me about a connection to Sherberg so I kind of felt like 
Sherbrooke's one of those places, all roads lead. <laughs> there are lots true. of people have connections some way, somehow to, to that, that community there. To the more Waka Waka country, of course. And another young lady who has inspired me over the years, um, Catherine Freeman, whose mm. family hails from Sherbrooke as well. Absolutely. So our grandfathers, would, yeah, <laughs> all, all the roads lead to Sherbrooke. <laughs> <laughs> so our grandfathers would play rugby league together. So um, I, I just love the work that Catherine has done. She's um, an amazing inspiration, ever so humble and um, does great work in the community of well as well with her foundation. Absolutely. Yes. And it's wonderful when you see athletes, you know, go or, or I guess anyone that, um, you know, she could have just retired and, and hung up her spikes. Um, but, yeah, it was wonderful that, that she's still giving back, um, you know, and, and you know, probably doing more than ever with her Catherine Freeman Foundation. You sort of see them doing some great work up there in Palm Island and, um, yeah, and everyone, you know, she's got a whole new generation of, of fans too that weren't around in 2000 to see her win gold. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Now, we heard Jodie's story and heard you speak about her incredible emotional story and I wanted to pay respect today on International Women's Day Take It Black broadcast to um, a lady who has worked in the women's prison in Melbourne, uh, Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. Her name is Auntie Lynn Colleen. She's actually worked at the centre as the Aboriginal Wellbeing Officer for the last 24 years. Wow. Which is incredible, <laughs> yeah? And this auntie, Auntie Colleen, helps the women with absolutely everything. She helps them maintain their ties to their family, their ties to their children in community as well. Anything the women need, you know, Auntie Lynn is there. Auntie Lynn also sets up every NAIDOC week um, radio broadcast through 3CR Radio out of Melbourne. They go into the prisons and do radio broadcasts with the women and Auntie Lynn is always ever so supportive of that. So big shout out to Auntie Lynn Colleen from DPFC for the extraordinary work that she's done because it wouldn't be easy to work in the criminal justice system, especially in a f women's correctional facility, right? That's oh, absolutely. It. It'd be ever so hard. So, so she is one of my champions, Auntie Lynn Colleen. There's also another woman I wish to mention, and you may have heard of this extraordinary woman. We sadly lost this sister back in 2006. She passed suddenly at age 45, so very young age. Her name is Lisa Belair. And uh, Lisa was a Melbourne activist, a photographer, broadcaster and a poet. And uh, Lisa had one book of poetry published throughout her lifetime. It was called Dreaming in Urban Areas and um, that was published by the um, University of Queensland Press back in 1996. So I'd encourage any listeners out there, if you want to hear some deadly poetry, get out and um, grab Lisa's book. Yeah, Lisa was an amazing inspiration. I never got to meet the sister girl myself, which... Um, um, yeah, really sad about because everyone just speaks so highly of her to this very day. I In was actually very lucky to meet her. Oh, so, tell me, yeah. sis, tell me more. I actually I was working for ABC's Message Stick program at the time, and um, I was uh, producing uh, a little documentary on Destiny Deacon, who is uh, you might know as a very accomplished uh, artist. I was just about some... to talk about Destiny. Oh, there next. you go. So, well, all roads lead to Melbourne <laughs> in this case. That's right, <laughs> but. Um, Lisa and, and Destiny were very close friends. So obviously as part of the interview or the program on Destiny, 
I wanted to speak uh, to her friends. And yeah, Lisa was, yeah, she was an amazing, you know, just a beautiful spirit, beautiful soul. The whole time we were there, she was there clicking in the background uh, because she was a very accomplished uh, photographer as well as being a a poet. I don't think I'd had my photo taken as many times in my life as I did in that across that two-day shoot. She was uh, documenting it. But, um, yeah, just, you know, I basically walked in as a still relatively young um, documentary maker and she was just so warm and welcoming and because I was nervous about it was my first time making a documentary. Mm. Um, but she made me feel so comfortable and, of course, we all know working in television you have to sort of set up scenes and get people to walk in and out of rooms and you catch it from every every angle and she was just so happy to, to work with us and do what we needed to do and so encouraging for me and it really sort of gave me the confidence to go away and um yeah got some beautiful material because she was just so happy to to open up and, and talk about destiny and her friend but also the support she gave me who she you know didn't someone she didn't know you know from Adam previously was uh, was really lovely so I feel really lucky that the first kind of documentary film I ever made was that she was she was part of that and uh, yeah and then I was very saddened you know not long after that um, I saw on social media you know that she'd she'd sort of passed away so so young um, so I said I only met her once but she certainly yeah left, left a, a mark mark a, such an impact which she has on so many people not only in That's Victoria it. but right across Australia an incredible woman you mentioned um, Lisa took your photograph yes and I just like to say that Lisa Belair would document absolutely everything in the community yeah, yeah. she would be there with her fo- her camera all the time, and in fact, by the time um, she was forty-five, Lisa Belair had collected more than thirty thousand images from documenting Indigenous that. Australian community <laughs> mob. As I said, like two days I was there, I was, you know, (laughs) just taking candids and yeah, just, and this was important to remember before iPhones and we all had a camera in our pocket. She had her, you know, her, you know, real deal photographers uh, and, you know, so she was doing that before, you know, nowadays we all take photos and we all upload them to social media, but she was there documenting, you know, those years when, uh, yeah, before cameras were as, uh, you know, had everyone had one, if not two, in their in their back pocket. Totally, but there's some really good news that's happened out of Melbourne. Back in 2018, there was a laneway that has been named after Lisa oh, Belair. Yeah, wait for the name. They've named the laneway in Carlton Warrior Woman. Oh, amazing. Which is just absolutely beautiful. The Warrior Woman laneway sign in Lisa's honour. It will be officially launched this May down in Melbourne. So that's something to look forward to. But I'd just like to explain how that name Warrior Woman came about for the naming of that particular laneway. It actually came about after Lisa Belair wrote a poem. In fact, after something happened to her um, in a street, Hanover Street, which is just off Brunswick Street in Fitzroy, Melbourne, which has a lot of local blackfella history. And uh, Lisa was walking along and she met a young boy and they connected and they smiled at one another. And um, the mother was there sort of um, looking a little bit perplexed as, <laughs> at uh, what she was witnessing. And then uh, Lisa went on to write a poem which included the words, in 20 years' time will he remember this warrior woman, I wonder. Wow. So beautiful. 
So the Warrior Woman sign, can I say as well, I've got some um, fresh news from community. It keeps on being stolen, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, like, I'm talking to sister girls about this and we're like, is it, like, Xena Warrior Princess fans who are taking <laughs> this? I don't know. <laughs> I have visions of all these Melbourne share houses with the signs on the <laughs> on the wall because, uh, yeah. People it's wanting to be fancy. warrior women. <laughs> So there you go. So um, that will be officially launched in May this year, which is really exciting. I also just wanted to mention, as you mentioned, Destiny Deacon, who's yes. an amazing artist, a cuckoo and Arab mer woman uh, who hails from far north Queensland and the Torres Strait. Yes. Is now based Great, in Melbourne. We're lucky to have Destiny Absolutely. With us mob down there. She's amazing, right? Yeah. yeah. And if you haven't seen her work, I think she's actually got an exhibition uh, opening pretty soon, I think I saw. Absolutely, uh, at NGV. Yeah. It's her so, first um, solo exhibition in 15 years. Yeah, so it's been a, a long time. But she does really fascinating work. She's sort of an avid collector, and this is why it was such a great documentary to make all those years ago, avid collector of, um, yeah, a lot of sort of kitsch and, um, you know, things like the, you know, the, the sort of gollywog dolls that are, you know, we now know, you know, are sort of yeah, pretty pretty offensive, but she's kind of taken them and almost reclaimed them and, and uses them um, in her work. You know, she's primarily a photographer, but she also does sort of some yeah, moving um, image kind of artwork. So, yeah, she sort of was taking all of these kind of yeah, rather inappropriate uh, dolls and toys and uh, kitschy souvenir type stuff and, and reclaims them. And, yeah, and... Um, and features them in her art. So, yeah, it's it's really sort of fascinating. And when we think about Aboriginal art, obviously, you know, it's it's not this is sort of something really really quite different it's yeah so um go, get along I'm really looking for I must, might have to uh you might have schedule to come a trip down. down to Melbourne I'm going to go to to out to Carlton and see the yes is it Carlton the Carlton I'll come along with yeah, you yes we'll see yeah Lisa's yes, Street Lisa's Street yeah Warrior, Warrior Woman Wa- Warrior Woman Lane and, and uh, we'll check out Destiny Deacon Destiny Deacon's exhibition, of course, opens at the NGV on the 27th of March. And also, get this, are you ready? Uh, There's a book being launched. Oh, cool. It's titled Destiny, and that will be launched on the 14th of March at uh, NGV. And I just wanted to just go back, just rewind back to sister girl Lisa Belair. Um, I've also been told this morning that uh, on the 19th of March, a building at Melbourne University will be named after her in oh, her honour, which is really lovely. So at one point in her amazing career of the, so many wonderful things that Lisa did and contributed to community. Lisa did work as uh, at one point as the Aboriginal Liaison Officer at the University in Melbourne, oh, University it, of Melbourne. That would have been a role, yeah, she's tailor-made for. As I said, the thing I remember most about her, obviously an incredibly talented poet, photographer and artist in her own right, but, yeah, it was her big heart that really, you know, that's the, the lasting memory of Lisa. So in a role like that, you know, looking after, you know, students, Indigenous students from all over the country going through university. She would have been amazing. So it's so nice that they're honouring her as well. It's just a beautiful thing, isn't it? You're listening to Take It Black in the studio with Kira, Natalie and myself, Kerry Lee.
be sure to subscribe to Take It Black so you don't miss out on our next episode. And please leave us a rating and a review so other people can find us. Nominate some women in your life who deserve to have their stories told. We'd love to hear their stories. And in the meantime, please keep the Take It Black conversation going by throwing us a follow on Twitter or using the hashtag TakeItBlack. Boys, 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 boys.